Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of WorthPoint LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of WorthPoint. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hey, Anthony Park, thanks for joining me on the podcast. How are you? Good, John. How are you? I'm great. Appreciate your time. Even amidst the craziness of the world that we're living in right now, we've got some important things to cover today, talking about estate planning, talking about probate uh, wills and the role of an executor. So this is extremely important information. I just appreciate your time and expertise. Uh, Can you give us some context, Anthony? How long have you been an attorney and what first got you into this industry? Well, I've been an attorney for about 20 years now. And, uh, you know, I got into this part of law just simply because it was the first job I had during law school. I worked my way through law school while attending class at night. And I enjoyed it because it was complicated. There's tax and law and a lot of things sort of intermingled. You have to learn about investments. You have to understand money. But it's also very personal, meaning I'm not dealing with spreadsheets and entities. Uh, I am dealing with some entities for like family limited partnerships. But um, I'm mostly dealing with people and families and their relationships with each other. And it's very, very Sometimes it's a little too much. It's a little Jerry Springer-ish, but, but mostly it's very interesting. There's, there's a very human dynamic to it. So I got interested, and I just kind of kept going down that path until, until today. I see. And to talk a little bit about some of the types of things you're involved in today. What does your business look like? So um, you, you have estate attorneys. You have estate planning attorneys who help people you know, do their wills and set up their trust and such. Then you have probate attorneys who um, who will help wrap up the affairs once somebody has actually passed away and actually execute that will. And then you have guys like me, I, I do some probate, but I'm also, I'm also the person to be your executor if you don't have a suitable family member or just somebody who's not a good fit for that, for that role. And, you know, or you just don't have the time. You don't want to deal with it. You want to, you want to mourn, you want to be with your family and you don't want to be running around to the banks or the courts and you want somebody to do that for you. I am available to do that for, for many folks and for families who are overseas. When, uh, when Aunt Mabel dies in New York, but all her nieces and nephews are in Ireland, um, it's just not feasible for them to fly back and forth, especially now. <laughs> but um, yes, So exactly. yeah, sometimes uh, they'll hire somebody like me to just sort of run the show in New York, boots on the ground, as it were. I'm glad you brought up some of the different uh, attorneys and where they fit into this process. So I just want to make sure I don't miss anything to reiterate for the audience benefit. There's, there's the attorney on the front end. That's the estate planning attorney. That's maybe like when the, you know, the mom and dad are still alive and they're, they're thinking about what may happen after they pass. And then you said there's the, the probate attorney. It's after, after maybe say mom and dad pass and they're, they're settling things up, but then there's also the role of an executor. So I just want to make sure I don't miss that. Can you illuminate a little bit more on those different types? of attorneys and where they fit into the timeline? Sure. So uh, in the past, um, some attorneys have sort of worn all three hats, but um, in, the, in today's day and age with increasing special specialization just everywhere, um, you know, why settle for somebody who's trying to be a jack of all trades and, you know, why not focus on some or, or hire somebody who's able to focus and be really, really efficient at, you know, what you need done. So if you're younger or you're just at the stage where you're, you're, you're trying to draft a plan, there are attorneys who are just really, really good at that, right? Um, you know, understanding your needs, helping you with investments, helping you with setting up a trust, um, you know, helping you understand the family dynamics and how that would play out at the end, and you know, helping you sign your documents to make sure you have a nice, solid plan in place. Okay. Uh, 
on the other hand, you have the probate attorneys who are really, um, really much more familiar with the courts. It's not as much handholding in, in, in a meeting room, you know, talking about who should be the guardian of my daughter, but rather this is the person who's going to fight for you in the courts to make sure that whoever was named as the executor under will actually receives that appointment, yes. uh, who fights with, you, with the IRS on your behalf to make sure that you only pay as much or as little <laughs> estate tax as absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And often, you know, dealing with a lot of other bureaucracies, landlords, real estate issues, just it's a lot of muck. It's a lot of dealing with a lot of legal issues that just come up when there's a, you know, it's a big transition when somebody dies and a bunch of assets have to move over from one, one name to another set of names. Yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense. I appreciate you sharing that. So, and I think uh, something else that I'd like your help is defining some of these key words because, yeah. uh, you know, the everyday person may not understand uh, the, the definition of probate or executor, administrator, will, trust. So uh, maybe we can set the stage by giving some definitions and maybe just some short examples to each of those. And then I'd really like to talk about um, maybe some things you've seen in, in helping people either, uh, you know, who are newly married with new kids or uh, who are in their 50s and they're preparing for their parents to pass, what should they be doing ahead of time? And then we can talk maybe a little bit about um, after you know, someone passes away, what some of the steps are. But as we set the stage, talk to us about definitions of things. So um, maybe you can give us a direction of even where to start there. But what, what are some of the things that we need to be defining in this process? So I like to start with probate because everything centers around that, meaning when you're drafting your will or your estate plan, you need to decide if you're okay with your, you know, your loved ones, you know, who survive you after you die, if you're okay with them going through the probate, probate process after you die. And then, you know, when somebody dies, that, that is the sort of legal process. And the definition here of probate is the legal process of settling someone's final affairs after they've passed away. And that includes legal stuff, uh, tax stuff, and a lot of uh, administrative and financial just paper shuffling, as it were. So that, that, that's the probate process. Um, the person who runs that process is the executor, right? That's the person who's appointed by the court, usually with the assistance of an attorney, to actually physically be the one to do all these things. Uh, something that's worth noting, and we'll probably touch on again later, is executors cannot delegate their duties by power of attorney. A lot of people think, oh, you know, I'm in LA and my brother died in uh, Boston, so I should be the executor and I'll just give a power of attorney to my attorney in, um, in Boston to do things because it's, you know, it's difficult to fly back and forth. No, you can't do that. You have to physically be there for a lot of things. Something, something that's worth thinking about when you're deciding who should be your executor. Yes, great uh, point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, another term that comes up a lot is trust, um, often referred to as a revocable trust or a revocable living trust. Um, that's, that's the most common one, at least. And that's an instrument that's uh, sort of a replacement for a will or a substitute for a will so that your family does not have to go through the probate process. It'll be very similar, meaning that you still have to deal with banks and, um, and even taxes, but you get to skip the court part of things, which is, can be a real pain for a lot of people. So if you want your family to avoid the headache and the publicity of the, probate, of the, court, the court probate process, you might want to consider setting up a trust instead. That's great. And I think there's a lot of confusion around the definition too of a will versus a trust. One is one meted yeah. versus another. So maybe if we can still pause and, and just talk, talk through what, what does a will do? Uh, when, when do people usually set that up? When is it appropriate versus not? And uh, you already touched a little bit on what the role of the trust is, but explain yeah. kind of the compare and contrast of the two. Sure. So one of the biggest misconceptions is that you need a will to avoid probate. And that's actually exactly wrong. A will is the document that governs what happens during probate. So we, we, we all kind of know loosely what a will is, right? It's the document where you tell, where you say who gets what 
and Who maybe even who's going to be yeah who's going to be your executor who's going to be in charge okay right that's absolutely right but that will that document has to go through the probate courts to be to be validated the court needs to make sure that it's your signature that um that you were of sound mind when you signed it right and all these other things that you weren't under duress from uh, you know if you were a frailer older person frailer yeah. i'm not sure if that's the word <laughs> when you yeah. signed under you know under duress from your you know money grubbing nephew or something like that so these things all have to be checked and verified by the court before they accept the will as a good legally sound will um so in contrast, the revocable trust actually avoids that whole process, which can be a pro or con, right? Because those are some safeguards that might be important to you. Okay, you, I think you, you might want to make sure. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, that's good perspective. Because on the one hand, I've heard that you know you that you know the, the trust you have to do it in every situation, but you bring up a great point. The, the probate actually might might add some extra safeguards in there that uh, might not have been considered before. I think that's a great point. Yeah. But if you're a tight knit family and you're and you're very very confident that um, you know your your spouse and your adult children are just you know they're going to get along fine and you just need to avoid any additional headaches for them, then setting up a revocable trust basically means you're you're taking everything out of your name. You know, in John John, it's not in your your bank account and your house is no longer in your name. Right. Now, I'm not trying to scare you, but rather it's yeah. in the John's trust name, meaning you just kind of change the title to everything. And what that does is. You, since you don't technically own anything, at least not, not, not yourself, there's nothing to go through probate. There's nothing to go through your will. And mm. instead, everything is governed by whatever is written in your trust. Yeah. You have a sort of, sort of a parallel set of instructions yeah. uh, so, you don't have, so, you can, so you can avoid court. That's great. And talk a little bit about um, the, what should somebody, well, actually, maybe first we could talk about what is, uh, what, what goes through, what assets go through probate versus not? Because, uh, you know, being a financial planner, I'm aware that some, yeah. some, some investments or assets do, some don't. So how do we categorize that in our mind? Sure. Pretty much anything that's in your name alone goes through probate. And I'll give some examples. Uh, with bank accounts, you know, you can either have your name alone or I'm not sure how you do it in California, but in New York, we have a lot of acronyms. We have ITF accounts, which are in trust for. We have POD accounts, which are pay on death. And we have FBO accounts for benefit of. But they all mean the same thing. They all mean that upon uh, the primary account owner's death, then the money goes to whoever's named. So it's like a beneficiary designation, kind right. of like life insurance. Yeah. Right. Um, so that kind of applies to, uh, to, to bank and brokerage accounts. If it's only John's name, then it'll go through his will or through the probate process. But if not, if, if you've named your spouse or your son as a beneficiary or a, a, a pay on death beneficiary, then it skips the probate process and it goes straight to that person according to you know, the beneficiary designation. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a really great point. So just to clarify too. So, um, you know, retirement accounts often uh, allow for you to name somebody as a beneficiary, somebody that's yep. you know, California. We call it a lot of times TOD transfer on death, but POD, same, same type of thing. So as long as you have maybe somebody named there to uh, take hold of that account, let's call it, let's again, think of the world of investments, then, uh, then that's a way to uh, skip or not go through the probate process. Even, even a non-retirement account you're saying with somebody's name listed as, as primary beneficiary um, that'll that'll miss probate so it's only if a non-retirement account doesn't have someone's name listed and I think most commonly I see that just purely in bank accounts for whatever reason I don't know why the the backstop isn't there when you go to a, <laughs> to a, to a bank but or credit union uh, unlike a brokerage company but anyway so that's where I commonly see it if you have a non-retirement account with no one listed then that's that's the type of asset that's gonna most likely go through probate correct and I just want to I want I want to throw out a word of caution because 
you know, smart people will hear this and sort of jump, you know, reach the conclusion that, oh, cool, I can avoid probate and avoid spending money on a lawyer by just naming beneficiaries on uh -huh. all my assets. Yes. Yeah. You're right? thinking the right. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure yeah. you've dealt with that before. So tell, tell us more about what that, what that implies. So yeah, that's absolutely right. That technically works. If you um, go around and, you know, add a beneficiary to every single account that you own. Yeah. Nothing's technically in your name at, you know, at the moment after your death and you don't have to have a lawyer or go through the court process, but there's a big, big caveat to that. I mean, I've been doing this a while. I've been doing this 20, 20 years, uh, 20 plus years. You always miss something. <laughs> I have never seen one of these things go through smoothly that no, is consistent with what the person actually wanted. Ah, it's just very hard to keep these things, you know, keep track of them and keep organized. And um, that can mean an ex-spouse. That can mean an, an ex-girlfriend. That could mean a, an imbalance between children. It, it's really hard to keep that stuff lined up with what you actually intend it to be. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think, it, I think within our lifetime, maybe within the next five, 10 years, that can be solved. Maybe, maybe an app that you can manage all your beneficiary designations and see it all in one place, which would be great. I would agree, you know, but we don't have that right now. Right now we have a recipe for thinking you're taking a shortcut, but actually causing more problems. <laughs> I think it's a great point. I've even seen that on my side. I can't tell you how many times I've seen uh, an imbalance between children. Yep. You know, the yeah. parents maybe intended uh, the children to have equal splits and yet still they, they had paperwork that was either um, even just on pure accident or that it was yeah. done under a different frame of reference. You know, they're, they're in good standing versus bad standing and things change. Uh, but they forget to update the forms. So it's just so yeah. difficult with all of the myriad of different accounts and custodians to really keep track of all that. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. It's usually quite innocent. Like I'm going to give my son my Vanguard account that holds Berkshire and I'm going to give my daughter, um, you know, my E-Trade account that has uh, Microsoft. I'm just picking names out of a hat. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. And they were, they were even in 1995 or whatever number, you know, <laughs> yeah. but then things changed drastically, yeah. you know, so it was totally, totally unintentional, but that's kind of the point, you know? <laughs> mm, I think that's such a great point. Okay. So we've talked yeah. a little bit about, you know, probate, uh, we've talked about wills and, you know, revocable living trusts and so forth. So maybe we can break this out and give you some examples examples of let's first actually talk to uh, those that are listening that may be, um, you know, uh, young children or young families. And so yeah. um, we had chatted briefly that uh, they actually might have some, while still extremely important, some more challenges in thinking about the uh, estate planning process. So let's t tell me a little bit about what does somebody who has a young family, they're in their 30s or 40s, uh, yeah. what, what do they have to deal with when they're setting up their personal estate plan? So it's, it's extremely important for, for starting families to, to, to get their estate planning documents in place, primarily to make sure you have something in place for your kids, both the, the money that you will leave then and naming guardians who will have custody and physical possession and legal authority for their well-being. That's you know, obviously huge for anyone who's a parent. Um, the problem is, and, and you know, so do that. You know, absolutely go speak to an attorney or, or whatever solution suits you to, to get that done. The problem is because you're most likely in your 30s or you know, maybe early 40s, you have a long runway between that moment and when you will probably pass, you know, just in all likelihood. Sure. So it's really hard to predict and, and accurately draft a plan um, to reflect you know, what's going to happen. So you either have to update quite frequently, which you know, realistically people don't do, <laughs> yeah. or, or you have to keep your document super flexible, which makes it just you know, a difficult thing to plan for. Okay. Um, and just to give some context, I like to use this example. Just, you might think, oh, yeah, no, whatever. If I keep my will, update my will every 10 years, that should be satisfactory, right? Okay. Just to give you a sense of scale of what 10 years means, 10 years ago, we didn't really use iPhones yet. 
<laughs> or any smartphones. It just blows my mind. You're right. That's how, how much the world changes in 10 years. So a plan that you have in place now could be totally out of whack with what you, what you intend or what the world is like in 10 years. So it's just really hard to make it super flexible. Um, I know most people don't actually have the, um, the diligence to update fre frequently. So just, just understand it's a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Cause, and, and just to give an example, let's say you've got, you know, two kids that are under age 10 or something, you know, if something yeah. were to happen to you and your spouse, often yeah. in that conversation, it's like, okay, my, my children can go to these family members or my money can go to them in this time frame. But then yep. there, there needs to be some like waterfalls in place. Tell us a little bit more about what that person needs to like think about and keep, when you say keep it flexible, what does that entail? So very, oh, very good. Um, so naming guardians is huge, meaning the person who will be in charge of, you know, the upbringing and the physical custody of your children. And, you know, when you, when you have, you know, a little baby, baby John in your arms, so innocent, tiny hand, tiny hand grasping your finger, mm. your impression of what, what his needs are and who is the best suited guardian for him could be totally different from teenage John. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh right? gosh, that makes me laugh. Yeah. Right. Because you're thinking about who, who, who can I imagine cuddling and, and nursing and feeding this, this precious little package sure. versus even just five years later, like, OK, who can deal with this tyrant? Right. This little little toddler running around and causing mayhem. John and then the dinosaur. Five, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and five years after that, it's like, who can rein this guy in and make sure he studies and, you know, keeps his future, you know, keeps his eye on his future a little bit. Okay. Those might be totally different skill sets or mm. you, your um, values might align with your sister for when John's a little infant, but you know what? I didn't think about the fact that my sister, you know, either doesn't have the same religious beliefs or the same approach to education, things that are much more important later on. So yeah, to your point, you want to have a whole um, depth chart, I like to call it, of guardians. Um, and you might have to revisit that as you, uh, as your, as your family grows and, and gets older and, and you, you kind of reassess your needs. Yeah. I think that's so good. Well, wow. a lot that could be talked about in that. And I, uh, I wish we could go further, but I do want to jump forward. And I want to think about from the frame of reference, still, still thinking in a planning mindset. Let's, let's flip forward um, you know, a couple of decades. So those in their late 50s, early 60s, let's assume that they now have elderly parents. Let's call this like you know, baby boomer generation right now that sure. has you know, parents in their 80s. And, uh, and they're expecting that as they decline in health and they eventually pass away, what are some of the planning ideas that, that baby boomer, young baby boomers right now can think about for their elderly parents? So there's kind of some good news on that front. And it's kind of a dark good news, but because you're dealing with somebody who's closer to the end, let's say, things are a little bit more certain, meaning you have a better sense of what the financial picture will look like at the end. I mean, maybe not a perfect sense, but it definitely more accurate than trying to project 40 years out, 50 years out. That makes sense. Um, you also know who the family tree is for the most part. I mean, at worst, it'll be a, a class of gen, uh, grandchildren or great-grandchildren, not how many more kids will he be having, you know? Um, so you, you, have, you have a lot of more boundaries around your planning. So those are the pros. You, 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 can, you know what you're doing. Um, some cons are you have to deal with more things like possibly uh, planning for healthcare costs, possibly Medicare or elder law planning, which is um, making sure that you don't, you don't own so much that you don't qualify for certain benefits. Um, that's one area that can be tricky. Um, and then, you know, if you have accumulated enough wealth, then you might have some estate tax or gift plan you need to do. But um, 
if I had to choose, I would rather do that than deal with the uncertainty of trying to predict somebody's next 60 years. <laughs> that makes sense. And how, how often is it the case, or at least just in the cases that you specifically worked on, that the, where, where the parents, the, the aging elderly parents, let's say, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s even, have communicated mm -hmm. to their kids, let's say they've got multiple kids, two or more, uh, like who is going to be fulfilling what roles? Is that a surprise for the next generation after the parents pass? Or do they typically have some level of communication before? Uh, that's a bit of a coin toss. I've seen it all over the map. Um, some, some folks really kind of sit down and have a family meeting and everyone knows what's up. Other times there's a lot of assumptions, meaning you know, I'm the eldest or I'm the one who took care of you when you're older and they don't necessarily match up with what's in the plan. So that can lead to some bruised feelings and some family drama. Uh, but yeah, I haven't seen anything consistent. It's really, really all over the map. Yeah. And then um, what if somebody, you know, I'm thinking about uh, even some of the, the, you know, cases I've been involved with loosely, um, but, uh, or even in my own family, like what if uh, somebody is named the executor and, uh, but then later they feel as if they either are unwilling, um, you know, or just unable to, to complete that for whatever reason, maybe they've been no fault of their own. So how, how could this, that role shift over time or could it even shift over time as the parents start to either get old or, or, or just pass away? Yeah, so luckily, um, so like I said earlier with the guardians, ideally you'll have a depth chart, meaning you'll have backups in case the, the first person named either doesn't want to or just can't. But even if everyone named is just disqualified for some reason or, or you know, bows out, there are, there are legal provisions that, you know, the statute does say you can choose on consents of everyone involved, just anybody pretty much. Um, and that's when usually attorneys like myself or banks get involved as professional executors to sort of run the show. I mean, if, if you have a bunch of people bowing out, it's usually because they realize what a, what a tire, tire, tiresome and thankless job it is. <laughs> so they know that they don't want to do it. And yeah. um, they, they would be happy to have an attorney or bank take over. That's great. So maybe we can transition. Let's consider what some of the first steps are, maybe the first two or three action items. Let's say just in the heat of the moment, you know, parent, mom and dad have passed away and yeah. this, uh, you know, the next generation is still kind of going through the mourning process, but they eventually need to get some documents in order and start contacting sure. people. What, where do they even, you know, start in this process, uh, you know, to, to start settling the estate? So, um, you know, there's a lot of bad information on this topic out on, on you know, on Google. Um, a lot of things like you need to call Social Security or you need to, um, uh, yeah, that, that's the one that actually frustrates me the most because you don't have to at all. Um, the first thing you should do is just get a really, develop a really good relationship with the funeral home. And the reason for that is, number one, the funeral home is the one that generates the death certificate. I see. And that's, there's a lot of important information on there. If you get it wrong, it causes a lot of cascading problems later. Mm, how interesting. Um, yeah. And, um, and that's the, producing the death certificate automatically notifies uh, Social Security. So just forget about what Google said. <laughs> okay, you don't right. have to dig up that phone number, you know. Right. Um, so that, that's really important. And I'll give you an example. Um, so if, uh, if somebody is, is an estranged spouse, right, but, uh, but lists themselves as a spouse on the death certificate, now they've, in, they've basically sort of assumed a lot of rights and responsibilities in the probate process. And the court's going to want to know why this person is who's named as a spouse on the death certificate, um, you know, is not the executor or is not this and that. And you either have to go back to the Department of Health and amend the death certificate, which is actually really difficult sometimes, or you have to do a proceeding to explain that situation. It's just a huge waste of time and money, basically. <laughs> that could have been easily avoided. Fascinating. Super interesting. Okay.
Yeah. Um, another thing you really want to do is, and this sounds really old school, but it, it totally still applies, is just get the address book. Start there because the address book will lead you to the CPA, the financial advisor, and the attorney, and the primary care physician. And those four people will give you a treasure trove of information of what, uh, regarding what needs to be done. Yeah. You know, it leads to you know, tax filings, uh, assets, wills, <laughs> trusts, and um, you know, healthcare documents and burial instructions. That, that's really the, those, those are the things you need immediately to, to really get started. I think you bring up a great point, which is just the phone book and calling the professionals who can guide you through this, because it's unlikely yep. that, uh, that you're going to go through this multiple times. So it's not like you're going to necessarily become an expert on your own within your small family. And, and then it's unlikely that there's going to be this uh, special box that's going to be at the corner of the desk, easily accessible. You can go over there and walk <laughs> and it's going to tell you steps one through 10, right? So, um, you know, I think maybe you can share some of your experiences of how easy or difficult it is for family members to, to even find these documents. But uh, so it's, it, it's funny you paint the picture of that box because I, I did have one estate like that and it was just so lovely. It was such an easy estate oh, because this, this, this lady was so organized, uh, bless her. Um, she had everything out. She, I think her Christmas lights were color coordinated and stored very nicely. Uh, she was just, that person. Yeah, she's got labels. She was so organized. <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, she had all her, you know, username and passwords and everything was just so easy. But the reason I'm talking about her is because she's so rare. <laughs> that doesn't, as you said, that usually doesn't happen. Um, and, and the executor or the attorney is usually as much a private investigator as anything. You're just, you know, digging through the mail, even digging through the garbage to find clues as to where the assets are or, um, you know, important tax documents, things like that. It can, it can be, it can be a real, uh, I don't know, dumpster dive. I don't know what else to call it. And just for expectations too, how long in terms of time uh, should, you know, beneficiaries uh, ex expect to settle someone's estate? Yeah, um, I would say minimum one year, the very fastest, maybe eight or nine months. And the reason I, it, it, I say that is because in New York, at least, there's a seven month waiting period from when the court appoints an executor and when that executor can send out the inheritance checks. Okay. And the reason that we have that seven month waiting period is so that any unknown creditors have a chance to raise their hand and say, Hey, actually he owed me some money. Oh, how interesting. Um, unknown creditors. Yeah. Okay. That yeah. gives, that's really interesting. And that can be anyone from American express or your home depot car or your car lease to Medicaid wanting to claw back some money for some benefits, um, you know, medical benefits you received or, or just basically any lawsuit or judgment out there. Um, so if you're a smart executor, I mean, actually, no, any executor must wait that seven months or else they could personally be liable to, and have to pay out that money out of their own pocket. So basically you will a never liability. distribute. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a big job. Um, people don't realize that. And they think it's more of like an honor, like a, like a maid of honor or best man kind of situation. No, there's a lot, there's a, there's a big target on your back when you become an executor. Good perspective. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. Awesome. Anthony, uh, we've covered a ton. Are there any other things that you feel like are important to bring up uh, during our conversation today? Uh, I, I'm getting a lot of calls these days, you know, what with all the disease and death that we, <laughs> this kind of the, that, that chatter that's floating around. Um, yeah, it's always good to have a plan, but um, don't, I, I, would, I would caution folks from, from diving into a plan during such hectic times. Uh, you, might, you might actually start making decisions that are not in tune with what your normal decision-making process would be. Um, so if you have an emergency plan in place, that's fine. And don't really tweak it until things settle down a little bit. That would be my advice. Yeah, that's great. 
Anthony, tons of really good information. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your <clears throat> education and expertise. Uh, for those that are interested, you can check out more of Anthony's information on his website, Anthony S. Park. And I encourage you to go on to Amazon. He's got a couple of really great books. Maybe, Anthony, tell us a little bit more about some of the content or ways people can get in touch with you. Yeah, I just write some books, um, primarily on probate and being an executor. But I also touch on some personal finance topics, things that I've learned through being an executor. You know, I've seen which financial decisions have pay, paid out, you know, at the end when somebody dies, you can actually see, did it work or not, right? So that's been actually really interesting to, to watch as part of my career. And uh, yeah, anyone interested in uh, executorial services, that is what I really enjoy doing for families overseas or folks who are just too busy to do it. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Anthony, thanks so much for your time. Have a great day. Thanks, John. You too. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.